0: Last year, eight of Brooklyn's best and brightest were selected to spend 12 weeks learning how to write, produce, record, and edit a podcast as part of Brick's second ever podcast intensive. The projects they piloted spanned nonfiction documentaries, personal essays, interviews, love letters, and languages. Armed with Zoom recorders and with headphones up, these burgeoning audio stars took us into the basements and backrooms of the food service industry on a life-and-death search through 3 million acres of National Park into the music that defines an existence and inside a memory from seven summers ago. In November, the cohort gathered in the Brick Ballroom for a live showcase of their work hosted by Special Projects Manager Liam Billingham and Media Artist and Program Instructor Nicole Solomon. Here's Liam.
1: How's it going? Good. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, so my name is Liam Billingham. I'm the Special Projects Manager for Brooklyn Free Speech Brooklyn free speech radio is all about community. We're all about getting people in a room whether to record an episode Whether to learn the skills and craft of podcasting together or in the case of the students in our podcast intensive to spend three to four months together Figuring out what their podcasts are and they're going to be sharing bits of their pilots with us tonight First, I would like to please welcome Demarius Kilpatrick to tell us about the industry is watching
2: Um, welcome, guys. Um, I'm Demarius, also known as Champ. I moved to New York City about eight years ago, and um, I really just wanted to work. I really just wanted to, like, I, I was a, I'm a photographer, and I was a budding filmmaker, and I really just wanted to get myself out there and collaborate with people. So I started The Industry is Watching um, as a way to collaborate and network with other artists, other entrepreneurs, and other just creatives in general. So what I'm going to do right now, I'm going to play you guys um, a short segment of my, my show. And um, here we go. I always say you only one phone call, one email, one meeting, one introduction, one contact, one project, one idea, one post, one tweet, one like from changing your life. My name is Demarius, also known as Champ Media, and this is The Industry is Watching podcast watching the industry is watching 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 the industry is watching they lurking they looking they love it they hate it they wait they plotting the industry is watching they lurking they looking. they love it they hate it they wait they plot the industry is watching they lurking they looking. Loving, they hate they wait they plot the industry is watching they lurking they looking they loving they hating they waiting they plotting the industry is watching podcast this is a platform for creatives artists entrepreneurs and influencers i created this platform because this is what i needed growing up in the industry a network and a collective of resources, information, and ideas. This is a place to be inspired, informed, and to be influenced. This is a safe space for industry underdogs and for industry insiders. So whether you just trying to get your foot in the door or you've already made it to a certain place in your artistry or in business, you know, this place is for you. So this podcast is more of the voice of the industry, the audio behind the visuals.
1: Okay, hi, everybody. Uh, Demarius, thank you so much. The class like this takes a a huge number of um, people to put together. There's a lot of people behind the scenes, but the person who's been even more on the front uh, line than me is my uh, friend and co-conspirator, Nicole Solomon. Nicole, will you please come up? (laughs)
3: Hi everybody, who I can't see. As a lot of you know, it takes a lot of work to make a podcast. There's so much behind the scenes stuff that goes into making what you actually hear. And we did everything from head to toe, tip to tail, podcast production in this class. So we were talking about storytelling, we were talking about structure, how to conduct an interview, how to write narration, how to deliver the narration. And that's before you even get into any of the technical elements, like actually recording Layering in ambient sounds, layering in music, cutting everything down and editing it. Everybody really put in an amazing amount of work. And so without taking up more of your time, I would like to bring Marie up. She's going to present about her podcast, The Usable Past, which I think is a really, really necessary and important project right now. It's kind of about learning from the past in order to fight for the future. And I'll let Marie take it from there.
4: Um, Two years ago, two events kind of crashed together in my life. One was that I had to move again, moving from Washington, D.C. back to Brooklyn. And the second thing that happened is that I got an email from somebody at the Smithsonian Institution saying, we'd like to talk to you about an exhibit we're doing about community organizing. And that's when I discovered that all the paper... All the stuff, all the flags, all the photographs that I had in boxes and boxes from 40 years of community organizing had value to someone. This is The Usable Past with Marie Nahikian. I've been a community organizer for 40 years. And in 1970, I organized the earliest national conference, which really turned into a national protest over the coming environmental crisis, was a prelude to the very first Earth Day. Today, 2019, almost 2020, we have a new climate emergency. We see organizations like the Extinction Rebellion with a stated aim to carry out as much global wide civil disobedience as possible as the only way of forcing the government and the governments around the world to make changes in policy. So we've seen civil disobedience. And in 1970, we saw some similar organizing strategies. In Brooklyn, we now have subway climate I don't preachers.
1: I want no money, but what I would like is a few moments
5: of your attention. I don't want no money. Not about
1: me. I just this to is question.
5: about all of us. My name is Nathaniel. I'm 16, and because of the climate crisis, my generation has little to no future.
4: So, Laurie Garrett, I have to start our conversation out by saying, okay, you live in Brooklyn, you don't own a car, you're a journalist, you're a writer, you're a scientist, you write about science, you've won a Pulitzer Prize, you wrote the earliest book about the Ebola crisis in 1994. But recently you took the time out as a, a scientist and a writer to walk across the Brooklyn Bridge, and you tweeted that um, there are hundreds of students walking across the Brooklyn Bridge to join Manhattan students and the climate change strike. What did it feel like to see these children walking across the Brooklyn Bridge? (laughs) Well, part of me, I have very mixed feelings about seeing the children marching and about Greta Thunberg and her statements to... United Nations and various other places, um, my feelings are that I feel tremendous rage and shame that my generation has dumped this crap on them. Floyd Norris was at that conference in 1970. Floyd was a financial columnist for the New York Times for over 20 years. Welcome, Floyd Norris. Tell us what you remember first about that conference.
6: What I remember was Secretary Hickel, Wally Hickel, who was then Secretary of the Interior, had previously been governor of of Alaska, he spoke to this group, and that didn't, today that seems extraordinary. This was a group that was certain to be hostile to the Nixon administration in those days. Of course, the vast majority of them were against the war in Vietnam, um, and generally hostile to Nixon only thing I remember from Hickel speaking is at some point, somebody asked him about something the Nixon administration had done. And his response was, we didn't do that. The White House did. And the distinction to me, I thought that was a strange statement because I saw no distinction between the two.
4: The Chicago uh, conspiracy defendants brought with them the yellow conspiracy and bullshit flags that had been waved at during their trial and the college newspaper editors waved a sea of these yellow flags at Secretary of the Interior Walter Hickel. Mr. Hickel was also confronted by Hopi Indians as he was being escorted out the elevator door started to close and the Hopi indigenous people were standing there and looked at him and he said, no, wait, I want to hear what they have to say. And they looked at the secretary of the interior, which controls the Bureau of Indian Affairs and said, we want you to know that we're dying.
6: You know, those were, those were very unusual days. Although, I don't think we understood it at the time.
1: We're gonna move right along here. Vera Rios and Brittany Fowle, will you please come up to the stage?
7: Around, like, I think like, almost two years ago, I started working at a chocolate factory and Brittany was my coworker. I've been thinking a lot about like the Food Network and the food uh, system and how it's actually like a very welcoming place, especially for people like me. I'm an immigrant, so you're going to have to bear with my accent. <laughs> and our idea is, like, since there are a lot of people that work in this industry that speak Spanish, That's what we're working on, like make a a bilingual podcast where women uh, feel like comfortable to speak in their own language. And so, this is our uh, podcast under the table.
8: Bienvenidos, Under the Table, a podcast where we explore the experiences of women in the food industry. Mi nombre es Vera. And my name is Brittany.
7: And we decided to talk about the food system because we've been working in the food system for a really long time. And that's not actually what we study for, but we somehow end up here. And we also have a really complicated relationship with the food industry so we figured that a lot of people has a similar relationship especially women working in this industry. I mean the
8: food system touches on so many aspects of life so it's kind of an easy industry to fall into especially I mean that's kind of how we both ended up in our most recent positions after going to college and you know trying to figure things out and then the food system sort of welcomed us with open arms. And now we can't get out for better, for worse. Or do we even want to?
7: The food system is very, very big. It's actually 13% of the GDP
8: GDP in the U.S.
7: In the U.S. So that's huge.
8: Yeah, Mm. it covers agriculture, finance, sales and marketing, retail, like grocery stores, cafes, restaurants and bartending as well. Um, So everybody interacts with the food system in some way because we all eat.
7: We all eat. So we have a lot of things to talk about. That's why we will come every two weeks with new episodes where we really go deep into each industry.
8: And especially the ways that they impact women because women are a huge, make up a huge portion of the food system. And a lot of times their voices are invisibilized. So we're trying to bring as many people into the conversation as possible using their native languages because a lot of the food industry workers speak Spanish or other languages. So we want to make sure that all voices are heard in their own native language, which is pretty uncommon.
7: Thank you for being our lovely listeners.
8: We're happy to have you at the table.
3: I would like to ask Nia to come to the stage to talk about
9: Sonic Blackness. All right, so good evening, everyone. Good evening, good evening. How y'all feeling, how y'all feeling, how y'all feeling? I am the lead voice of sonic blackness. The name itself is a play on two things, the first being um, a theory by um, a musicologist, Nina Sun Edsheim, um, and her theory of sonic blackness spelled B-L-A-C-K-N-E-S-S, in which she is thinking about the way in which sound is racialized and the way in which people perceive what something black sounds like, right? But even within this theory, it's a theory that really Really looks at the outsider gaze, at the white gaze and the way in which they're hearing us. And so with this podcast, I'm really interested in reclaiming the narrative of the way in which we hear ourselves. And so blackness is spelled B-L-A-C-K N-U-S-S in tribute to Rasan Roland Kirk and a 1972 album entitled song that he had called Blackness in which he states we don't mean to eliminate nothing, but we're just going to hear the black notes at this time if you don't mind. And so that is the focus of my podcast with sonic blackness i was really really interested in really thinking about the emotional currency and impact that black music has had on my life and had on the life of my future guests and so this one song that has followed me has haunted me throughout my life is come live with me angel from the album i want you He was beautiful, and from the way he would swagger in half past night, the sheen of his black only rivaled by a failed star line, flashing a grin line with the promise that he would take one of us home if we'd let him, he must have known it too. And we, the women from Vernon Ave all the way to St. Mark's, who followed his every move around those parties with wanting eyes, knew it too. On those nights, we made ritual of rubbing shea butter on collarbones and scenting all the quiet places of ourselves with scents ancient and holy, praying that this woman's work would not be in vain and we would capture his grin, if not his heart. Somehow, be it fate or a shared joke, one of those nights found us cheek to cheek. As we danced underneath a lemon-colored moon, he asked all the usual getting-to-know-you questions that at 2 a.m. echo like wedding bells, me awkwardly trying to match the rhythm of his cool, and for the summer after that night, I tried to match the rhythm of his cool, pretend that day dates and semi-public kisses soothe the inevitable sting of eventually answered texts and the whispers of other women. Telepathically will him into what I knew he couldn't give monogamy. And in the fall, when there was no answer to the question of what we were or to be, I knew it was over. Winter came, and despite my hatred of the cold, it wasn't enough to stop me from the allure of Jamed's parties. I needed the warmth of can't-see lights, kitchen conversations, and dancing on hardwood floors to remind me why I moved to New York for all of the days when my paycheck didn't. And, to be honest, I wanted to see him and have him see me more beautiful than I ever saw myself and miss me and want me. Slow danced me back to the summer when Jamed signaled it was for the lovers only hour by playing Prince and the Isley Brothers back to back. But he saw her and everything in that moment slowed down when he parted the sea of lovers and soon to be lovers that crowded the living room dance floor and flashed a grin that I knew wasn't for me. I wanna be a lover, he gathered her in his arms, holding her as close as I held my pride, and danced with her right in front of me.
1: Let's talk a little more about music and culture and and the complexities of that. Uh, Maria Patricia Slee, will you please come up to the stage?
10: When I started this show, I just went around to a whole bunch of friends and I asked, what does it mean to you to be Latino? ¿Qué significa para ti ser Latino, and I got all different kinds of answers. I got so many different answers that I decided to do one story at a time about what it means to be Latino, and this is my show, my Latinidad. Episode one, Disorderly Cumbia, Episodio 1, La Cumbia Desordenada. Soon he reappeared in the crowd, looking elated, and began dancing again with his girlfriend. Se veía muy feliz. The concert continued, with more happiness and excitement, and a few more songs passed. Y el concierto siguió con más alegría y diversión, y pasaron unas cuantas canciones más. We all thought that was the end of it. Right, Marilyn? Oh, yeah. That was it. He was on stage, they took him off stage, done. De repente, vimos a dos hombres del equipo de seguridad del evento ahí adelante, revisando el público. Suddenly, we saw two of the concert security people up front, scanning the crowd. They spotted the dancer and quickly moved towards him through all the people. El bailarín era más pequeño que ambos. And the most grand of the guardians confronted him with a very strong posture. The world needs peace. The world
2: needs peace. peace. Vamo con la cumbia de la paz.
10: One of the guards was very tall, at least a head taller than the dancer, and while confronting him, leaned over and looked downwards at him. Eso lo vimos y nos preocupó mucho. Marilyn and I didn't like this at all, and we shouted, no! She jumped up and moved very close to them. Todo pasó muy rápido, antes de que yo pudiera, por ejemplo, acercarme al bailarín y abrazarlo como si fuera un viejo amigo. I tried to think of some sort of dramatic intervention, like coming up and hugging the dancers if I knew him. But it all happened so fast. En menos de un instante, los guardias de seguridad lo habían llevado fuera del concierto before we knew it the guards were on either side of the dancer and hurriedly walked him toward the exterior fence of the venue Marilyn siguió, lista para grabar cualquier cosa con su teléfono Marilyn followed right behind them with her cell phone ready to record video
9: you know the way I felt was that when I saw Sergio on stage dancing I'm like that's me on stage dancing and when I saw Sergio getting pulled out of the audience I'm like that's me getting pulled out and so I felt Really personal. Like,
10: no. Yo me quedé bailando porque la verdad me demoré en realmente entender lo que habíamos visto. I have to admit right here that my solidarity was slower to manifest than hers. Y
9: luego me just jumped up and, like, I followed
10: because and it just didn't seem right. Something just didn't seem right, you know. ¿Cómo pudo ser que alguien fuera votado de un concierto nomás por bailar? Simplemente no me cuadraba. No tenía sentido. But it simply did not fit into my mind the possibility that somebody would be taken away for dancing. We knew he had hopped over a barrier to get on stage, but the motivation was to express happiness. He didn't hurt anybody. He didn't threaten anybody. He just danced. Y todo sucedió tan rápido. The girlfriend had turned toward their seats to pick up her purse and phone. When she turned back, her boyfriend had already been taken outside by the security guards.
7: I guess he was so at that time. Why you got, you ended up taking me out that he wanted to go in. But I don't know. And, and to the moment that he wanted to go in, I guess they put that music. That's when I saw that that's when the cops came in and they just took him down. And I was just like, it's just not right
3: Um Katie, can I call you
11: up to the stage? Hello. My name is Katie. I am originally from Houston, Texas. If anybody in the audience is from Texas. I am a child of the 90s and so when I graduated from college, I thought I was gonna move to New York City and be like Jamie Foxx on The Jamie Foxx Show and I was gonna blow up. I was gonna get here, I was gonna meet people and I was going to be cool. And I was and I wasn't. Um, So I made We Making It. So I'd like to think of We Making It as honest conversation, I think artists in New York City especially are making beautiful, inspiring work. And then what? You go to a show, curtain closes, and then that's it. You don't know how they afforded it. You don't know if they had a mental breakdown on the way there. Um, So I was really curious about creating honest conversation. This is a clip from my episode with Shafin Seymour and his premiere at Triskelion uh, a couple months back. So listen real quick. Are back on another episode of We Making It Woo. This is a weekly conversation of access to success. So we can what? Progress. Your girl has been practicing on this tagline. Special we guest in for... the building. Special guest. Can you introduce yourself?
5: Uh hi. My name's Chaffin Seymour.
11: So Shaven is showing work at Triskelion on May. 17th
5: and 18th at 8 p.m. Yes. Tickets are available now.
11: Talk to me a little bit about the the dreaming and the mixing bowl and the ingredients that you were conjuring to kind of get you ready to show this work.
5: kind of started my last year of graduate school at the University of Iowa, where I was for the last two years. Mm -hmm. Um, And my thesis project was kind of embroiled in this struggle of trying to make something that I felt like could speak to how I felt about um the socio-political environment now mind you i was in iowa for the 2016 election which you know i'm depending you know i'm not going to assume how all your listeners feel but i'm going to assume we were all pretty downtrodden after that um and kind of left me in a place of feeling like really what is what is my role in this not as just a dancer, not as, like, as a citizen. Right. So that was kind of like the starting seed. I was uh, fortunate to be a choreographic fellow at Jacob's Pillow at the end of last summer, wow, which is an incredible program. If, yeah. I, if you haven't applied, I think the application's still open for this summer. I would definitely recommend it. Um, when I was there, it was with uh, Risa Steinberg, who teaches at Juilliard, and yes. Diane McIntyre, goddess of Diane. All, all that we do. Yeah. Um, and then this year, I believe it's actually uh, Reese is back with B.B. Uh, Miller. So that's going to be really excited to see like, what the cohort there <laughs> will look goddesses. like. Two more goddesses. I know, right? <laughs> um, so I, that was a really incredible opportunity to kind of take those ideas and seeds and start working with um, two of my longer-time collaborators, Cameron McKinney, who uh, runs his own company, Kizuna Dance, and then Sophie Satsuki, who also runs her own company, Type Dance. And we've been kind of in each other's networks for a while. We did the piece that you saw, Trisky, yes, ag- three years ago now. Whoa. Um, they were both in that process and yeah. cam's been' uh, been a friend and a collaborator for a while um, so when it came back to transitioning back to New York, it made sense like why don't I find people that I know right I just I mean it started with like who do I want to hang out with for 10 days in the woods and make some dance
11: right, um, right. so
5: we got to we got there and she built a lot of material, uh, <laughs>
1: Uh, Let's shift away from dance and to movies. If you like world cinema uh, and you like Iranian cinema, this next podcast is for you. Arzu Hansen, will you please come up to the stage?
12: Hi, everybody. My name is Arzu. I am the creator of Cinema Iran, and it is a podcast dedicated to the beauty, complexity, and diversity of Iranian culture and uh, film. I feel like Iranian cinema is fantastic. It really does talk a lot about the human condition and it's something that everybody can relate to. So hopefully when you guys leave here tonight, you'll feel inspired to go see some Iranian films with fellow cinephiles. And um, yeah, that's it. Welcome to the first episode of Cinema Iran, a podcast dedicated to discussing the beauty, diversity, and complexity of Iranian culture and film. I'm your host, Arazu. In today's episode, I'll be sharing some of my favorite cinematic moments and behind-the-scenes real-world stories of Jafar Panohi's 2006 film, Offside. The film captures the events at Azadi Stadium in Tehran, Iran on June 8, 2005. A football match is being played between Bahrain and Iran. Whoever wins the match is heading to the World Cup. The plot of Offside revolves around a group of women who disguise themselves as men to gain entry into the stadium in hopes of watching this historic match. These fans are forced to don disguises because beginning in 1979, all women in Iran were banned from attending live sporting matches. The ban, which lasted 40 years, only recently came to an end in October 2019. FIFA, the international governing body of association football, threatened to ban Iran's national football team from participating in any World Cup games, unless Iran began allowing women to attend football games. So during the ban, women had to get creative. Now this episode contains spoilers, so I highly recommend watching the film before you listen any further. Offside is a funny, poignant, and thoughtful film where Panayi holds up a mirror to Iranian society and asks viewers to ponder questions about women's rights and equality. The style of the film is also really interesting in that things are intentionally ambiguous, where you start thinking things are real, but they're not quite. And Panayi does this on purpose. He said he intentionally wanted to blend documentary and fiction, where you have a real event in a real place, with characters and extras who are non-actors. I think regardless of where you're from or what your background is, I believe anybody can relate to or at least sympathize with the themes in Offside, which essentially asks, why does one group of people get to decide how another group should behave?
3: Last, but certainly, certainly not least, uh, can Louisa please come to the stage?
13: Uh, my name is Maria Louisa Tucker, and my podcast is called The Search. It's a podcast series about what it means to be a family. Um, I grew up in a pretty unhappy household, and when I was 26 years old, my dad, who's, this is him, When I was 26, he went missing. The Search is a five-part podcast series. Uh, When my father disappeared into a three-million-acre forest, everyone had a different idea about what had happened to him. Maybe he ran off with another woman. Maybe he was on a spontaneous camping adventure. Or maybe he had walked into the woods to die. In each episode of The Search, I investigate one of these leads. And along the way, I explore the unspoken assumptions about what it means to be a family. It was February 7th, 2006. My father and stepmother had had another fight, a bad one. She left for work and then apparently my dad walked out of the house and down one of the trails that led into the Tonto National Forest. It's a three million acre forest in northern Arizona. A week went by and he didn't come home. So my stepmother, I'll call her Kim, she called the cops. Another week passed, and Kim called me. Everyone had a different theory about what had happened to him. The neighbor thought my dad was camping alone somewhere deep in the woods. I guess he'd mentioned that he wanted to go on a walkabout, whatever that meant to him. So I started hiking the trails, looking for him.
1: Please subscribe to these shows and give these guys your support. And thank you very, very much. And good night.
0: Thank you to Liam Billingham and Nicole Solomon for running the show. And thank you to Mark Pagan for getting the ball rolling back in 2018. And thank you to all the participants in last year's podcast intensive for making beautiful work and sharing it with the world. You can subscribe to their work on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in being part of the 2020 podcast intensive, visit brickartsmedia.org for instructions on how to apply. Applications open Friday, June 14th. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias, and Emily Boghossian, Shadeen Vargi, Kyrell Palmer, and Charlie Hoxie. We're tackling everything from language to cooperative economics this season, and we want to hear from you. If you want in, send tips, pitches, thoughts, ideas, self-destructing messages, or just regular normal emails. To radio pitches at brickartsmedia.org and check the show notes for a link to our pitch page if you want more info. This episode featured music from the DeWolf Music Library. For more information on this and all brick radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org/slash radio.